Let me first say a big greetings to our faith family and a hello to everyone tuning in uh, to this week's time in our word. It's great again uh, to be able to be together in this way, uh, together in God's word. This is about that time where we have a chance. I hope you together with family or friends have had an opportunity to pray together, maybe even sing songs and worship together. But at this point, we're going to have an opportunity to dive right on in to God's word. And so I hope if you have a Bible, go on ahead. We're in the book of Ruth. And so I would love to just invite you to turn together with me to the book of Ruth, which is the series that we've had a chance to be in for the previous number of, of weeks. But before we we get into the book of Ruth, I wanted to share um, a bit of a, a story as a way of setting this uh, message up. It wasn't too long ago, but a little while ago, where my children at the time had come to me and were curious. They wanted to know, Dad, how'd you meet Mom? And they were interested in knowing exactly how we came together. And so I had Ask them, really? Do you, do you want to know the story? Yeah, tell us the story. And so I had a chance to take them all the way back to uh, before we ever started dating and share with them, well, it just so happened that your dad um, happened to be mentored by a brother, a good and a godly older gentleman who had poured into my life the moment I had first come to Christ in my, in my 20s. And we would often, week to week, take it upon ourselves to get together at a coffee shop and, and have time. And so it just so happened, I told my kids that we happened to be out again for coffee, and he, like he would, would give me his time and give me his ear and just pour into me. And that kind of thing took place. Well, on this evening, it just so happened that it was the same evening that his wife was a part of a weekly Monday night prayer meeting with other women, a part of the church. And it just so happened that as we had lost track of time and were in fellowship and just going back and forth, that he realized that his time had passed for him to be able to pick up his wife. And so he alerted me, look, I hate to call it short, but I got to go. And if we could, if we can go together, I know our conversation isn't done, but if we can go together to pick up my wife, we can finish our conversation. At that point, I could drop you off at your own car. Would that be okay? I said, sure. And so here we are in the car, leaving the coffee shop, continuing our conversation, he pouring into me, me taking no notes and, and listening as best as I could to, to him. We arrive at the house where the prayer meeting is taking place, but it just so happened that the prayer meeting wasn't over. And it just so happened that a young woman, not any one of the women who were praying in the house, happened to be the one who opened the door to receive us. And here we are now in the house with them still praying, being entertained by this young woman who just so happened to be the daughter of the woman hosting the prayer meeting where my mentor's wife happened to be. And so here we are, he introducing me to her and, and he introducing her to me. I'm discovering a bit about her and she's discovering a bit about me. And this young woman ended up being who would eventually be my wife. He would. And what's interesting is it wasn't planned. 
at least not in my book. And it wasn't anything that I had woke up that morning prepared for. It had nothing to do with our meetup and our mentorship. It had nothing to do with the prayer meeting per se and him needing to pick her up, but it was every bit God's program. So my kids are listening to this story, which was told in a little bit more detail. And they're like, dad, I got a question for you. Do you, do you think that that was an accident? And, uh, I looked over at them. I said, look, kids, and that's the title of my message. It's no accident. It's no accident that we happen to meet each other in that way. Yes, to us, a lot of times, we've, we've been looking all throughout the book of Ruth at God's providence. And a lot of times it looks like luck or happenstance or circumstance or, or you name it. But when we look in hindsight, what, what do we notice? God's hand was there all along. Yes, it takes us getting beyond the moment a bit to be able to see as God sees. But as far as what we can tell, that's really what life is. It's, it's no accident. God is showing us through this story of Ruth that regardless of whether it's difficult times or times of ease, God's in it. And that there is no luck or circumstance or happenstance involved in what God is doing in our life. In fact, the Bible likes to say it a little bit differently. Romans 8, it says that all things are working together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. That doesn't sound like accident to me. And I I want you to know this because I don't know exactly where your life may be. Maybe you're in a season where you're praising God for it, or perhaps you're in a season of, of despair and there's a lot of confusion Maybe even a lot of questions and uncertainty in your life. And you're wondering, how can I make any sense at all as it relates to my faith with what's going on in my life? And I want you to know, the book of Ruth is written to encourage your heart, especially if you happen to be in that that sort of period in your life. The book of Ruth is also encouraging because God doesn't just work through miracles. God works through circumstances and through ordinary people like Ruth, like Naomi, like you, like me. You see, we can't just sit around and wait for God to move and work in the world unless and until we're prepared to also believe that God is inclined oftentimes to want to use us as his instruments in his hands to accomplish those same, those same purposes. And that's what we see all throughout this book. Perhaps you're somebody tuning in who's seen yourself and you could never get beyond it as someone who, as far as you can tell, you're too far from God in your mind to ever be considered by God or to ever think that this God that we talk of would want anything to do with you. You know what? The book of Ruth was written so that that notion could be dispelled. The story of Ruth is there in our Bibles to blow out of the water that whole idea. That no matter who you are, and no matter what your background may look like, and no matter what your family may look like, and no matter what your past may be riddled with, there's always hope for someone like you. That's Ruth. Ruth was an outsider who ended up belonging not only to God, but to God's people and to God's purposes. And I'm excited to be able to be 
in this book of Ruth still with you. And we're having a chance now to, to move along. We're in chapter 2 in verse 14 where we get a chance to see a beautiful introduction to a man who is an exemplar for us men and a woman who equally is an exemplar for you ladies. In fact, what we see here are two single individuals. And guess what? They're godly. (laughs) I know that's a rarity in our society, but here we have a classic case in point of not only a godly man, but also a godly woman who end up encountering each other. Yes, it's more than just tips on, on dating or on relationships, but you'll find something that will help you in your dating and in your relationships. Maybe if you're a single person out there, I know you will probably be encouraged to hear this message because you probably have endured a good number of marriage sermons, but this is your shot and this is your opportunity to have a chance to be able to see, if you're a man, what it looks like to see a portrait of a godly man. And if you're a woman, what it looks like to see a portrait of a godly lady. Another thing I want to bring up is, and you're going to have a chance to see this as we have a chance to dive into God's word. You see, Ruth and Boaz were women and men who didn't spend their life prioritizing finding the right person. Rather, they gave themselves focusing on being the right person. These were two individuals who respectively allowed their character and their reputation to precede them. I think that's important because unless we're careful, we can put our whole life on pause, if you will. Until the right person comes into the picture. Or God's plan as we envision it comes into the picture. There's a lot of people waiting on God to show up in a way that fits their picture of how God is to show up before they ever make a move for God. That's not Ruth. That's not Boaz. Rather, as they're waiting on God, guess what? They're living out their faith before God. And that's going to be important for us. In fact, if you've got your Bible out already in verse 14, let's pick up the story right there. And that mealtime, Boaz said to her, speaking of, of Ruth, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. Notice at this point, Boaz has been nothing but gracious toward this woman, Ruth. He's had a chance to not only encounter her through his servants, he ended up going so far as to make acquaintance with her. And he learned about this this woman, Ruth. In fact, he mentions it in the beginning part of Ruth in chapter 2. And we saw that last week where Boaz was amazed by this woman's reputation. He was amazed by her loyalty and her love and her commitment to her mother-in-law, even after her own husband's Death. He, he was surprised and encouraged by her work and her commitment to want to serve not only God's purposes in her own life, but also Naomi's interest. And he brings that up to her, so much so that he gives a word of instruction to his own servants as far as what he's permitting her to do in his field. Now he brings her into his own circle for a meal, for a meal. Boaz, the word Boaz 
means, believe it or not, strong. <laughs> the word Boaz means a strong man. In 1 Kings, in chapter 7, Solomon was given the privilege and the permission by God to construct a temple so that the people of God might be able to worship. David wanted to be that one, but because of too much blood upon his hands, God didn't permit him. Rather, he waited for Solomon to rise up to be able to have that opportunity. When Solomon constructed this temple, he also built pillars that surrounded this temple. And on each pillar, you would have a name inscripted upon each one of these pillars. And on one of the pillars, the name that we have is Boaz. The word Boaz means strength is in him. Strength is in him. I think it's important. What, we're, what God, I believe, is trying to say through not only his name, but the fact that he would even allow his name to be on a pillar, is Boaz was a strong man. Men should be strong men. Not just in terms of physical strength, although that could be there, but they should be strong emotionally. They should be strong spiritually. They should be strong for their homes. They should be strong for whatever future God has for their life. They should be strong for their communities. They should be strong for their families. Boaz was, a, was known as a strong man. It wasn't just the name that he had. It was a name that accurately captured who he was. It was on a pillar. What are pillars for? Pillars are there as a support to the structure. Men should be existing wherever they are in their homes and in their communities and their churches as, as pillars, as there to support what's going on. Without the pillar, the, the structure can come down. In the same way, without men in their proper place, like a Boaz, what otherwise would be held up may not be held up. That's Boaz. That's Boaz. And it's this strong man who invites Ruth for a meal. You see, men should be both tough and tender. I know in our society, when we get away from God's portrait of a man, we end up getting extremes. So what we'll have in our society when we go looking around, on the one hand is we'll have effeminate men. What we mean by effeminate is basically you have men who take on a lot of the characteristics and the traits that ordinarily and typically and exclusively belong to women. In other words, they get away from what it means to be masculine and they identify more with what it means to be feminine. That's an effeminate man. And there's something not right about that. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says that the effeminate will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. But opposed to that extreme, we have another extreme. And that is, we end up having these machismo, dudes dude. This sort of stereotypical guy um, that we see in our society. Where manhood is reduced to very loose, superficial, simplistic ways of being able to say, that's masculine or that's a man. And so it's tough at the expense of being tender, not Boaz. With Boaz, like with Christ, we see a man who's both tough and tender. He's tough for Ruth, and we saw that with what he said to the servants, 
but he's tender with Ruth. I think that's important. And that's what we're beginning to see with Boaz. And so what he says to her in verse 14 is, come here, which gives us the impression that she remained at a distance almost to show respect, almost as a way of saying, unless you bid me to come, I won't come. I want to respect and honor your space. And so he invites her in and he says, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. This is beautiful. This is now what we're seeing here is, is fellowship. I mean, he could have easily stopped at the point of allowing her to glean in what was his field, according to Leviticus 19. And that would have been enough. In fact, he goes even further. And he creates a sexual harassment policy, if you will, and sits down the men and says, look, I don't want to see her harassed sexually or physically. He goes so far as to pray for her. And now here he allows her to sit down and to dine with him. This is significant. You see, Boaz in his day and in his time is a pious Jew. So what you got to understand is in this ancient Near Eastern culture and context, this is something that would have been frowned upon. This is something that would have, in fact, I'm sure it was the case if the men had caught wind of and noticed Boaz sitting down and having a meal with this woman, they would have said, what is a pious Jew doing with a Gentile woman who's a Moabite, a foreigner. Boaz is a picture of Jesus. Doesn't the Bible tell us that Jesus was a friend of sinners? Doesn't the scriptures tell us that he was someone who was accused of eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? You see, Jesus had no problem being branded in that sort of way. He was willing to risk how other people were prepared to perceive him out of love for all people. Not just Jews, but Jew and Gentile alike. Not just men, but men and women alike. Here we see in practical fashion what Galatians 3 and 28 tells us. That there is now therefore no Jew, neither Jew or Gentile, slave nor free. Barbarian nor Scythian, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, male or female. And Boaz is modeling what it means to be Christ-like through his willingness to want to eat with this woman. It's a beautiful picture. And he goes on and he says, so she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied. And she had some left over. And when she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. This is beautiful. So at this point, Boaz is even going above and beyond the law To the point where he's lavishing her with grace. Not only does he give her a meal, he sits with her. 
She's given an opportunity to be there at the table along with those who were rightfully hired on as his employees. She's an outsider. She's someone who didn't go through the normal means to be able to be hired on. And yet there she is, which is a picture of grace. Here now he's, he's showing us something beautiful about himself, that this is a generous man. This is a man, no doubt, with privilege, but he's generous. And I think that's important. A lot of times in our, in our society, we, we have a, a tendency to look at people with, with privilege and automatically assume that they must be evil or bad, or, or something must be wrong with them, or they must have acquired that or came into possession with that under some sort of sinful or unjust means. But notice, we have two case studies. We have a poor woman, and we have a rich man. But we have a righteous poor woman, and we have a righteous, rich, wealthy man, which tells me that there's nothing in my wealth or in my poverty that makes me righteous or unrighteous. No. But that's what we see in our society when we politicize and polarize different groups, and we never get anywhere as a community. Better yet, the Bible offers us something else, that I could be, I could be righteous and wealthy or righteous and poor, and I could be wicked and wealthy or wicked and poor. That it's not about whether I have or I don't have. It's about where am I in relationship with God. And I'm thankful that in this story, we see a man of means. We see a man who has possessions. We see a man of of wealth, which is what it means to be a worthy man. He's not only a man of war, a man of valor, a man of wherewithal. He's a man of wealth. He's a generous man. It's not just, it's not, it's not the possession of money that's the root of all evil. It's the love of money that's the root of all evil. You see, I can use people because I love money or I can love people. And one of the ways I can precisely love people is by how I use my money to love them. That's Boaz. That's Boaz. Boaz is a generous man and he's showing his generosity in, in this way. Notice he He goes so far as to not only give her an opportunity to glean with the servants there in verse 15. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. So based on Leviticus 19 and Deuteronomy and other places, the people of God were instructed by God to not only harvest their crops, but to, they had a profit margin. And they were entitled to that profit margin. But they were told and instructed by God to leave the margins of their profit that they gained from their harvest for the marginalized. So that those who were poor, or those who were foreigners, or those who were strangers, or widows, or orphans, would be able to have the opportunity after those who came for harvest to be able to glean what was left behind. It was just a way of God through his people showing his generosity. And he wanted these foreigners and he wanted these strangers and he wanted the poor to be able to know that God had a heart for the poor and God's people have a heart for the poor. Boaz goes further to be able to show God's grace. Not only... 
Is it so, according to God's law, that the margins are to be left for the marginalized? That means after you harvest, you're supposed to leave those edges for those who come after you. Additionally, if you were to drop sheaves of grain that you had carried, you're not to drop down and pick them up again, you're to leave them, which is a way of, again, showing God's generosity. Boaz goes even further. Boaz instructs his servants by saying, look, I want Ruth, well before the harvesters even finish, to join the harvesters in their harvesting. This was unheard of. If someone was bold as to intrude upon a field and begin finding themselves picking after and along with the harvesters that did belong there, it was expected that they would not only be frowned upon, they could be rebuked, they could be harassed, danger could come their way. And Boaz knew that. But Boaz not only gives Ruth that permission, Boaz says, and do not rebuke her. Allow her. Don't see it any other way. This is beautiful. This is beautiful because Boaz wants to show God's grace the same way Jesus wants to show God's grace. That no matter whether Ruth is an outsider, he wants her to feel as though she's an insider. And I think God wants to do the same with us. The question I have for us is, is that true of our churches? Is that true of our possessions? Is that true of our homes? Is, is my family, is my marriage... Is, is my home, my apartment, my church, and my possessions solely for me and for my benefit? Or am I someone who truly believes that if God has given me these things, if God has entrusted these things to me, he's done so so that I might be a blessing to others? Because that's Boaz. And I believe that's what God wants all of us to be. You see, these men who otherwise would have rebuked her see her as an outsider. What are you doing on our turf? What are you doing acting and behaving as though you're an insider when in all actuality you're a foreigner? I'm afraid a lot of times, unless we're careful, our churches could behave and have this impression with those who would be considered outsiders. I got a question for you. When someone becomes a Christian... And they decide to not only attend your church, but join your church. How do they feel? What, what sort of image or impression do they walk away with? Is it that of what Ruth walked away with from Boaz? Or is it that of Boaz's servants? When people come to our churches and when people join our churches, do we have the impression of Boaz or the servants? Do is our heart attitude, or maybe even our words and our actions, that of, why are you acting like you've been around here forever? You just joined. Keep that in mind. You know you're new. You know you've only been here a week. You know it's only been a month. You know that's my seat, don't you? <laughs> you know that's my ministry, don't you? You know that's what I do, and you're in my way. Uh, you better be sure that you're not going to be involved in any sort of way unless you've been here as long as I've been here. You, you know who I am and you know the place I have. And so a lot of times when we give off that sort of impression, either through our words or through our actions, like we're, 
We're varsity. You're, you're JV. All right? You just came a month ago. Believe it or not, we're driving people away from our churches. We're not encouraging people to join our churches. You see, if Boaz didn't say anything, these men would have, regardless of what Ruth may have already encountered with God, they would have canceled all of that out and driven Ruth away from God's presence and God's people. And I think what God is trying to say here is we want to have the heart of Boaz in our churches. We want to have the heart of Boaz in our communities. When somebody moves in and we see the U-Haul down the street is our initial inclination, hey, maybe we could bake a pie or a cake or purchase something and, and make a trip down the street and just knock on that door and just say, hey, welcome. We're such and such family and we're glad you're here. If there's any way we could make you feel home, if there's any way we could be neighborly towards you, please don't hesitate. Is, is that the impression that our, our communities have? You see, that was Boaz. That was Boaz. And Ruth is satisfied, the Bible tells us. She's on the receiving end of that. And also, he says in verse 16, pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. This is, this is great. Not only does he tell these men what to do and what he's okay with Ruth doing, he gives them further instructions. He says, by the way, this is what I want you to do, all right? As you go about doing your harvesting, I want you to begin walking off the field, but I want you to do something for me, all right? They're like, okay. I want you to accidentally, <laughs> I want you to purposely drop your food and your grain, but make it look like it was an accident. Hmm? No, yeah, yeah. And on your way out, I want you to drop it. It's almost as if you got 20s and, and 50s and bills. I want you to accidentally, if you will, drop it along the way as you're out. Why? Because I'm going to have Ruth come after you. And what is he going to have her do? I'm going to have her work, the Bible says. I'm going to have her work. He says there, I want her to come and beat it. He says, so she gleaned in the field, he says, pull out some of the bundles for her, verse 16, and leave it for her to number one, glean itself. So beautifully, Boaz not only wants to show charity or generosity, he, but he doesn't want to do so at the expense of Ruth's dignity. You see, you see, what Boaz is saying is, I don't want to make a charity case out of Ruth. I don't want to harm her dignity. Yes, we want to help the poor. I mean, I, um, there's a wonderful book that I, I read about how helping can hurt and how to help poor people without hurting poor people. And it's beautiful because Boaz here wants to be generous, but not at the expense of Ruth's dignity. So what does he do? He not only instructs the men to be generous, he also says, but I want to make sure that when she comes around, she still has to work. That's important. You see, when we give a helping hand, if you will, to people, you want to make sure you do so in such a way that at the end of the day, the people that you're trying to serve are empowered. All right? Let me ask you a question. Like, you see, it would be a problem if, if I want to get you to read your Bible, if I'm doing all of the reading, there's a problem. 
If I, if I want to get you to serve and, and lead Bible studies and teach and evangelize, but if I'm the one doing, doing the evangelizing and doing the teaching for you, I'm not really helping you. If, if I want to get you to the point where you take on a job and you actually involve yourself at a workplace, but if, if I'm the one filling out the application and submitting it for you, I'm not really helping you. There's got to be a way where I'm there for you, but I'm not there for you at the expense of your dignity. So I want to encourage us all. We probably have people in our lives that every one of us are in a season where we need a helping hand. We've all been there. Even if you're at a point where you're the person offering assistance, you know there was a time in your life where you needed someone there for you, like by God's grace, you're able to be there for someone right now in this season of your life. But the one thing I want to caution all of us is what I believe God wants to caution us through Boaz. You see, Boaz is offering a helping hand to Ruth, but not at the expense of Ruth's dignity. She still has to work. She has to glean. And I think that's important right? God wants to help us. Notice the Bible says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. It's not just God working in you, all God, and you're just sitting back, let go and let God. That's, that's cute, but it's not in the Bible. (laughs) It's, it's me and God. It's God in my working. You see, in the same way, we need to have the character in the heart of God in our relationship with other people. And I fear a lot of times, maybe this is the case. Could it be that the reason why you don't let go of people, I I recall people who've led Bible studies, uh, people who've led ministries, people who've been supervisors in jobs, or people who've assumed one kind of responsibility or another, whether that's in the church or outside of the church. And I would ask him, uh, have you managed to develop other people around you? Um, Have you come to that point where you got leaders to replace you? And they're like, no. And as I probed and and prodded a bit, I I noticed, I fear, help me and let me know if I'm wrong, but I get the impression that you're afraid. Am I afraid of what will happen if I replace myself? is sometimes we can have the weird, odd feeling of wanting to be, have people codependent. That we like people around. We, we like to be needed, if you will. And we, we're afraid that if we empower people too much, that they won't need us around any longer. That they won't need us in the way that they have needed us up till now. My question, I think Boaz would say is, what's the problem with that? That's exactly what should happen. You should be in the lives of the people who need you today in such a way that they don't need you tomorrow. And that's Boaz. That's Boaz. Verse 17, we're told, so she, she gleaned in the field until evening. She's a hard worker. She worked until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned and was about an ephah, a barley, an ephah would be anywhere from 30 to 50 pounds of food. This would last, scholars tell us, two people, Ruth and Naomi, up to several weeks in terms of having food supply. This is a blessing. An ephah, a barley. Verse 18. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. So now she's back 
to where Naomi is. Naomi's looking at her and saying, wow, what did you just come home with? Where were you? How did you get your hands on that much of a supply of food? And here she has a chance to talk to her. Verse 18, she took it up and went in the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. So not only does Ruth bring home the ephah of barley, which is about 30 to 50 pounds, several weeks worth of food supply, she also brings take home, home. She also brings a doggy bag back. Remember, Boaz brought her home for a meal. He had her sit down for a meal time, and she had more than enough. And he allowed her to, to be sent home with some of that. And so here she is with nothing but blessing upon blessing. Verse 19, and her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? She's got nothing but questions. And where have you worked Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Naomi says, I don't know who it was. I don't know what favor you got. I don't know where it came from. But I do know this. Wherever you were and whoever it was that had this kind of heart toward you, may that person be blessed with the same kind of kindness that was shown to you. It's Naomi. You know what we're beginning to see? We're beginning to see a turning point in Naomi's heart. You see, in, in, in chapter one, Naomi could only speak ill of God. She, had a, she, she could only see God and his involvement and his sovereignty through the eyes of bitterness. Now, we're beginning to see a, a transition, a turning point take place in Naomi's heart and in Naomi's life and in Naomi's relationship toward God, that she's... She's almost prepared to see that same sovereignty of God, no longer through the eyes of bitterness, but guess what? Through the eyes of faith. Through the eyes of faith. And we see that through what Naomi's saying here. May, the, may that man be blessed who took notice of you. So Ruth says, look, if... if if, if you're going to talk that way and if you're going to meet me coming back with that sort of excitement, I might as well not so much tell you where I was because that's least important. I need to tell you with whom I was. And so she does. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I worked today, guess what, is Boaz. It just so happened to be Boaz. I don't think that's any accident. It's no accident at all. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not, only forsake, has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers, the Bible says. Naomi realizes, what is going on here? You, you got to understand, Naomi has had nothing but despair and pain and grief 
and loss mark her life up to this point. She, she, she's had nothing as far as she's concerned to be able to go off to believe that anything good could come out of her life. I mean, this is the same woman just before the close of chapter one who said, look, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara. Call me bitter. Call me bitter, old, angry woman. This is what Ruth had as a roommate. And Naomi is looking at Ruth returning. She's seeing God's kindness following Ruth. And she's seeing a turning point take place, which is showing her, what, God's around? God sees me? God's involved? God's still there? God's at work? All this good has come to us? You see, she was at a point where she was prepared to write God off. But now she's arrived at that point where she's saying, wait a second, could it be that I've, I've interpreted all of this wrong, that I've looked at all of this wrong, that I've seen God with wrong eyes? God is good. That hope is born. That I can live. That there is a future even for someone like me. And she's seeing that right here. And she's praying that. There's no way that she would be able to say these things unless it were because God had done a work upon her heart. You see, God's faithfulness followed Naomi, not only to Moab in her rebellion, but it also followed her back to Bethlehem in her repentance. But it's only now that we're beginning, Naomi's beginning, to see God's hand, God's good hand, God's kindness, God's hesed, as the Hebrews would put it, God's loving kindness, his loyal love, his grace, his mercy. Are you someone who, when you look at your life, because of the the pain and the despair and the scars that surround it, you probably say the same, that it's kind of hard to believe that God is good with all of this going on in my life. That, that was Naomi. Maybe you're at a place where you're like, how do you hold on to hope? How do you reach out to God's grace and God's kindness when your life looks the way that it does? Naomi would have asked that same question. But I want you to know, the same way that God was faithful with her then and there, he's prepared to be faithful with you here and now. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. You see, Ruth has had a chance through her loyalty, not only to Naomi, but to God, to be able to allow Naomi to be able to see this day finally happen. Ruth is a godly woman. I I wanna leave us with a couple of, Remarks as far as what a portrait of a godly woman looks like and what a portrait of a godly man looks like. You see, in Ruth's case, number one, she's a woman of faith. She's a woman of faith. In in chapter one, in verse 16 and 17, she tells Naomi, wherever you go, I'm going. Where you die, I will die. Where you live, I will live. 
In chapter 2, as soon as they arrive in Bethlehem, she doesn't just merely sit with Naomi waiting upon God. She shows us and models for all of us, men and women alike, what true faith is. It's active faith. She asks Naomi for permission to go out to work, to go out to glean. And she does. And so she models for us, faith goes out and looks for God's provision, looks for God's providence, reaches out for where God is. That was Ruth. She, was, she knew God was out there. She knew God was on the move. She knew God was working. And she says, but if I'm going to know it personally, I've got to go out to find it. And so she does. Ruth is in many ways a picture of Abraham. Isn't that Abraham in Genesis 12? God comes to Abraham in the Ur of the Chaldees. He wasn't a Jew. He was a Gentile. He didn't worship Yahweh. He worshiped false gods. He didn't come from the right background. He came from the wrong background. He didn't come from a good family. He came from a bad family. And yet God met him where he was anyhow. And what did he say? Leave country, leave family and father and kin and go to a land that I will show you. That's Ruth. Ruth had to leave her land, her parents, her family, her gods, her religion to a land that God would show her Bethlehem. But you know what, ladies? I believe, I believe Ruth models an even more beautiful faith than what we see in Abraham's case. Why do I say that? I say that for this reason. You see, Abraham had God. What I mean is, Abraham had the voice of God. God actually came down and spoke audibly, if you will, to him. Ruth, she didn't have that. All she had was Naomi. And we know what Naomi's looked like up till now. And yet, she followed God anyhow. When she had every reason to go off of Naomi's poor witness to go in the opposite direction, she didn't. She's a woman of faith. Number two, she's a woman with a great work ethic. Look at that in, again in chapter two. and verse seven, Boaz comes to his field to survey it. And he says to his servants, who's the new hire? Who's the, the foreign woman? Oh, her? And they have nothing but good to say, not just about her and her character, but also her work ethic. She's been working except for one break up till now. And we just learned that she continued to the evening. She was a woman who worked hard. A godly woman is a hard worker. This is that Proverbs 31 woman, if you will, who, who gets up while it's still dark, who works till it's late, to look after the well-being of her home and her husband and her children. That's, that's Ruth. She's a woman of a, a great work ethic. She's, number three, a loyal friend. She's a loyal friend. The Bible says in chapter 1 and verse 16 that she was prepared to be with Naomi no matter what. That's basically what she was saying. In fact, Boaz, when he finally gets the report about Ruth, what does he say? I've heard about you. Your character and your reputation, he says in verse 11, has preceded you. I've heard about how you've been loyal to your mother-in-law even since your own husband's death. She's a friend. See, a godly woman knows how to be a loyal friend to others. But she wasn't a friend because she was getting everything she wanted or deserved from Naomi. I mean, after all, Naomi was pretty crappy in her relationship toward Ruth. 
She was constantly trying to distance herself. She was constantly trying to avoid Ruth and not identify or associate with her. And yet, Ruth was loyal to her anyways. She's humble. Uh, Chapter 2 and verse 10. A godly woman is a humble woman. She exemplified humility. I mean, look at that in verse 10. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, the Bible says. She was a woman who, when God's kindness, when God's favor through Boaz, when God's grace eventually, finally came to her, she wasn't the kind of woman who said, of course, it's about time somebody sees who I truly am. No, she was humble. She wasn't lacking. She didn't have poor self-esteem. She just knew her place. And she was prepared to put others ahead of herself. And here she's showing for all women, what true humility is. The fifth, she, she knows grace personally. Look at verse 10 again. It says there, why have I found huh, favor in your eyes, Boaz? Whoever said the word grace or the, the picture of grace is not in the Old Testament. It's right there. She has nothing but questions for Boaz when he pours out grace upon grace in her life. Why? Why have I found this much favor in your eyes? She's a woman who knows grace. That's important for a godly woman. You see, in order for us to have the right heart toward other people, in order for us to be gracious toward other people, guess what? We need to first experience that grace ourselves. The reason why Ruth never responded to the tragedy and the adversity and the suffering in her life the way Naomi initially did was because she encountered grace on an experiential, personal level. She knew grace. Sixth, she, a godly woman, is a woman who, who has a heart of gratitude. So not only does she personally know grace, This is the only way she's been toward Naomi in her relationship with Naomi. And she expresses that gratitude by the fact that she has nothing but thanks to offer to Boaz and the people around her. And lastly, number seven, she's holy. Ruth is single. She's a Moabite. She's someone who is broke. She's poor. She's bankrupt. She's homeless. She's a woman who comes from different worship of different gods. And here she is, vulnerable. She's in a part of the world that is strange to her. She's around men that could easily prey on her. And guess what? Where in any other situation, Ruth is not a likely candidate of the kind of person with her background And the kind of abuse that's taken place in her life that would be a righteous woman. She's not cohabiting. She's not sleeping around. She's not offering herself for sale. No. She's loyal to her mother-in-law. She lives with her mother-in-law. When night comes, she goes back home. She's not out and about flinging. She's a woman who remains loyal to her God and to God's people. She's holy. She's holy. And because of this, God honors her. You see, Ruth is not just an example or a portrait for godly women. Ruth is a picture for the church and for all of God's people. But for us men, I want to give us a portrait of godly women. 
You see, a godly man, in Boaz's case, number one, a godly man, godly men are strong men. This is important for us men. Men are to be strong men. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians, in chapter 16, it tells us there, in 1 Corinthians, in chapter 16, in verse 13, be watchful, men, stand firm in the faith, act like men, and be strong. Boaz, the name of Boaz means strength is within him. Boaz was a strong man. He was a pillar. Let me ask you a question. Are you, when people look at our lives, do they see this sort of strength in our character? Do they see this sort of strength in our reputation? Do they see this strength with our, our words and our speech? See, I think that's what's needed in our society. Number two, godly men are worth imitating. Look at verse 2 of chapter 1. We're told that this Boaz was a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech. The word worthy means he's worthy of imitation. When, when people look at your life and mine, do they say, would a mother say to her son, I want you to grow up to be like that? Would a young woman aspiring to be married say, I sure wish when I meet a man, I'm going to meet a man like that? When, when a daughter or a mother looks at her daughters, does she say, when you get married, I want you to be married to a man like that. Boaz was a man worthy of imitation. When, when people look at our lives, are, are they discouraged from our life? Or are they drawn toward our lives? Boaz was a man where people drew near to him. Number three, godly men are generous men. Yes, Boaz was wealthy, but notice he didn't squander his wealth upon himself. He used his wealth to be generous and to be a blessing to those who are around him. I think that's important. I think that's important. Boaz wasn't a taker, he was a giver. And here we see Boaz using his generosity and his wealth in this way. Fourth, godly men are public about their faith. Look at verse 4 of chapter 2. We see that. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. You hear that? The Lord be with you. And the men, or the reapers, responded back to him, And the Lord bless you. You see, Boaz was someone who wasn't this way only on Sunday, if you will. He allowed his faith and his Christianity, so to speak, to, to go beyond Sunday, and he took it to the workplace. That's important. Men, part of what it means to be godly men is that we're not out and about and proud of our faith on a Sunday with all of God's people. We're also prepared to be public with our faith even during the week. That's Boaz. A fifth, godly men have the Father's heart. Look at verse 8. Together with me. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter. You hear that? He didn't say, Now listen, you Moabite. Now listen, you who are an outsider. Now listen, you who are poor. Now listen, you who are broke. Now listen, you who are homeless. Now listen, you who are widowed. Now listen, you who, who's a childless woman. Doesn't say any of that. Now listen, you who worshiped previous false gods. He calls her daughter. 
He doesn't see her as an object of his gratification. He's not undressing her with his eyes. He's, he doesn't see her as an opportunity. He, he's not looking for a good time. No. You see, one of the ways, men, you can overcome your challenge with the way men wrongly perceive and relate to women is by having the father's heart toward women. He calls her daughter. Even if you may not be of the age of a father, you can still have the father's heart. When, you see, men, when we look at the women who are not our wives in our community, in our society, in our circle, how do we see them? Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 5 and 2, Timothy, treat the older women as mothers and the younger women as sisters in all purity. And the only way that's going to happen is if I pray to God, God, give me your heart toward the women in my community. I know when you look at them, you see them as your daughters. I know when you see them, you see them in all purity. I know when you see them, you see them as precious made in your image. I know you don't see them as someone to take advantage of. You don't see them as meat. You don't see them as an opportunity. No. And so if I'm going to relate to the women... And if I'm going to overcome evil, dark, low thoughts and feelings toward the women in my society, what do I need as a man? A godly man has the father's heart. A godly man has the father's heart. Sixth, godly men care about your safety. Godly men will care about the safety of those who are around them. And that's what we see here. Right here in verse 8 and 10, he, he discourages the men from doing anything. He reminds Ruth, look, have I not talked to these servants already? And have I not discouraged anyone from ever harassing you? That's a, that's a godly man who, who looks after. He uses his strength. He uses his power, not in his own interest, but for the interest of those who are around him. And lastly, godly men are after your friendship first. You see that in verse 14? Godly men are after your friendship first. At, at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat. You see, this is the beginning of probably what will be a relate, what we know will be a romantic relationship. But before we ever see marriage, before we ever see these two betrothed, if you will, what exists first? A friendship. Marriage, before it's anything, it's companionship. It's not good that the man should be alone. I will provide him a helpmeet, a companion, one suitable for him. You see, one of the ways to get a relationship off the ground in a healthy fashion is by making sure that it starts off as a solid friendship. You see, you don't want a toxic relationship. Toxic relationships bypass friendship and they start being about other things. That's not here. And godly men are there to be able to lead the way in making sure that I see our friendship before I see anything else. See, as we're closing, I want you to understand something. Even though Ruth is a beautiful portrait in a picture for what 
our sisters and our ladies can follow after. And, and Boaz is a wonderful case study and example for what we as men could follow after and seek by God's grace to become. I want you to understand something. Ruth ultimately is the church. And Ruth ultimately is a portrait and a case study of what it means to be God's people. And Boaz, he's that greater Jesus. He's a picture and a portrait of who Jesus ultimately is. He's the kinsman redeemer who's come to buy us back. You see, the good news that Naomi and Ruth are discovering is even though they may be widowed right now, they're not going to be widowed for long. Even though they may be childless at this moment, they may well not be childless for long. Why? Because Boaz is a distant relative. He's a kinsman redeemer, which means a kinsman was there to serve as someone who would buy back or redeem any time any one of these situations took place. You have a situation where a land that was tempted to be forsaken, if they were going to lose it, a kinsman could buy it back so that the property is kept within the family. Or maybe there was, an oppor- there was a situation where a husband had died and the woman was left, not only without a husband, but without children. A relative who was qualified, who had a reputation, who was worthy, would have the opportunity of stepping in and serving as that kinsman redeemer. If someone was going to find themselves in a difficult situation and the only way they can get out themselves out was by selling themselves into slavery to be able to resolve their situation, a kinsman redeemer would step in to that situation to buy that person back so that they would not have to be a slave. You see, Jesus is our ultimate kinsman redeemer. You and I had been sold off into slavery to sin and to Satan and to death. You and I had a penalty that was due our sin. You and I had incurred a debt with our sin that no one of us, no matter how much of a lifetime we had, would never be able to pay back on our own. And so Jesus, as our distant relative, if you will, the way he became a relative is by entering into this world and being born of a virgin woman, taking upon himself flesh like you and me. He had to be made like his brothers in every way so that he might be able to die in our place and for our sins. You see, Ruth comes from the wrong background. You and I have come from the wrong background. Ruth comes from a bad family, a wrong family. She comes, her descendants are Lot. We've descended from Adam. You see, Ruth came to Boaz, poor and needy. You and I have come to God, poor and needy. Ruth stumbled upon a field that did not belong to her, but was actually in the ownership and possession of another person. You and I, no matter what we may have, we don't own. It belongs to another. But the good news in God's favor and God's kindness is all that is mine, Jesus said, is yours. And what I want to encourage us as we're coming to a close here today is I want to leave this with you. Your life and your season may have begun with despair and pain and loss, but God wants to show you through his faithfulness, through his loving kindness, through his loyal love, he's prepared to bring hope into your situation. 
as we look to him the same way Ruth did. And so I want to leave this with us as you'll have a chance to take this message, go to God and say, God, if you were prepared to be that much and more to Ruth, would you give me the grace, even the faith, to be prepared to believe that you can do the same with me? God will answer that prayer. God bless you. Father, I pray right now that you bless with that hesed kindness and love your people. Lord, I ask that as we seek to draw near to you and trust in you and cling to you the same way Ruth had no other route, no other alternative but to cling to you and to look to you and to trust in you, may you show up even in our lives. God, as you brought about a turning point in Naomi's life to where she may have started out by looking at her situation and you through the lens of her own bitterness, my prayer is that like Naomi changed within her heart by your grace, so may a change of heart take place in our own lives so that we can start looking at our situation and at you in the midst of our situation, no longer through the lens of bitterness, but of faith. Father, do this, I pray. Lord, we thank you. Lord, we bless you. Lord, we give you all of the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.